Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you, and welcome to another edition of Around the Table. I'm delighted to have with me our regular panellist, Mr. Lutful Islam and Safir Ahmad. Welcome, gentlemen. Assalamu We continue our series and explore the life and legacy of one of the most revolutionary figures in history, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Born in Mecca in 570 AD, Prophet Muhammad's impact on the world was transformative and continues to inspire millions around the globe. Muhammad was a social, spiritual, political and intellectual revolutionary who challenged the norms of his time and advocated for the rights of the poor, the marginalised and the oppressed. His teachings laid the foundation for a new social order that transcended tribalism and sectarianism bringing diverse communities together under the banner of Islam. In the early years of his prophethood, Muhammad faced immense opposition from the Meccan elites who sought to maintain their power and privilege. We heard in the previous episode how the uh, Meccan elites uh, colluded to stop the message of Islam from spreading and in fact they plotted uh, to kill him. But nevertheless, by the grace of Allah and his protection, the Prophet continued to spread his message and slowly but surely managed to convert people to his message of the one true God. We touched upon in the last episode uh, the boycott uh, of his clan, the Banu Hashim, by the Meccan leaders. This lasted for almost three years. However, Muhammad, peace be upon him, his resilience and unwavering commitment to his message eventually led to the boycott being lifted and he continued to spread his message of social justice and equality. So in this episode we'll continue on that journey and discuss what uh, transpired thereafter. Perhaps I can start with you Lutf. Um, the three years or so of the boycott uh, had an immense toll uh, on the Muslim community. On the one hand, it was, uh, as I said, it was transformational in that the patience and the fortitude shown gave the Muslims a new conviction and their commitment to the message continued uh, by spreading the message of Islam further. But it also had a heavy toll on the Holy Prophet Muhammad in his personal life. He lost his two dearest family members, his wife Khadija, and his uncle Abu Talib. Yes, so of course, you know, these three, almost three years of complete social and economic boycott would have had devastating effect on the physical health of the of the people, including the elderly, like the uncle of the Prophet Abu Talib, who passed away soon after the boycott was lifted. Um, and I've mentioned previously that upon his deathbed, there are split opinion on whether he converted to Islam um, or not. Uh, but um, uh, the Ahmadiyya community believes that he must have because um, looking at all his past services um, for the cause of Islam, although it was, um, you know, on the face of it um, to serve or, or to protect his nephew, but uh, even the, the most ardent uh, and... Um, 
and uh, you know uh, the, the most selfless relative would have backed out at this point but Abu Talib um, did not and as a result he, he definitely would have suffered a lot of um, hunger during that time and that is most probably the cause of his demise soon after the lifting of the boycott um, and Abu Talib was the last standing person between uh, him, the Prophet, and the uh, the enemies, the the rest of the Quraysh, who were bent on destroying this community, but also had made every excuse to try to um, drive them, the Muslims, out of the town. And now, with the uh, with the Talib gone, um, it was you know an open target that the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, could have been killed if it was not under God's protection. At the same time, his, uh, you know, around the same time, but they are in the same year, in fact, Khadija, the Prophet's um, loyal and committed wife and the mother of the believers, passed away. Um, she was uh, almost 15 years his senior, so she would have been around 65 when he passed away. Um, and um, leaving behind uh, three daughters uh, who, who survived. She also bore some sons who did not reach adulthood. Um, but there were three daughters, Fatima being the most uh, well-known one, but there were Rukayya and Zainab as well. Um, and the Prophet was uh, grief-stricken at the loss of his uh, devoted wife. He was also a devoted husband to her. Um, and people who look at the life of the Prophet sometimes forget or miss this very significant detail that although he had married multiple times for at the prime of his youth age 25 to almost 50 he had just one wife who was 15 years his senior uh, and uh, he did not remarry during her lifetime and we had then we, we have we'll probably discuss it in a later episode on why he married multiple times afterwards that there, there was, was a reason behind it um, one significant aspect of his life that must always be remembered by everybody especially Muslims that uh, you know devotion and love for one's wife is um, showcased or is um, the role modeled by the Prophet himself during the very early years when the companion of during his most vulnerable times First of all, the call to uh, the message, um, the doubts that would have he would have had, and they are recorded in the books of Hadith. Uh, God created for him a constant source of support in the form of his wife, who stood by him, uh, devoted not only herself but also her wealth mm -hmm. for his cause, um, and also even despite her what would say high upbringing she accompanied him to uh, into this boycott and suffered a loss of health that resulted in her demise um, so yes the, the, these two events definitely had a significant effect on the prophet peace be upon him and one can imagine the grief and the helplessness at that time he would have felt although god was always with him but you know being a you know, as humans, uh, ordinary mortals, uh, we, we, we need to 
put ourselves there and see how could this person who was who had a very handful of followers his most ardent and most uh, committed support from his uncle was gone mm. his wife has passed away and he's left without any um, uh, protection in the city full of enemies and that's where i think i mean if you think about the lowest point you know where somebody's resolve and mental is tested that would be, this would be this year mm. Mm. yes indeed and it's um um historians have called it the year of grief as well haven't they because as you've uh, outlined uh, so eloquently the the combination of all all these things meant that uh, it was a quite a trialing period for the holy prophet i mean we mentioned the huge impact that uh, um khadija the holy prophet's wife may Allah be pleased with her had on the mission of islam i mean you know she she literally gave everything uh in order to support the holy prophet her wealth um her time effort and supported and she was the first to accept him as the prophet of islam so uh one can only feel uh, or or try to feel the the agony that ma- must have been going through uh the the prophet of islam's uh mind at that time Abs- uh, absolutely and if i could just comment on one point which uh, lotif referred to and that's just the um the fact that this happened just after the period of bo- boycott and the boycott was such a demanding um a trial for the believers then surely to any normal person this seems like a the 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 leadership of the holy prophet of islam the route he's taking his followers down is coming at great co- personal cost to him um what sacrifices is he willing to make he may have seen uh, the trial physically um apparent on his followers and not just his followers but his nearest and dearest uh but I, th- i think history stands testament to the fact that he didn't change course after mm. that it might have, it might have made a lesser man or a lesser person change course but he just progressed with the mission he was given it's quite amazing isn't it that not only did he continue with his mission the the conviction that he had despite the three years and in the last episode we talked about really how rough and uh difficult that period was you know food hunger social boycott um absolutely everything was 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 kind of locked down for them um but he led his followers right from the front mm-hmm. so you know he was um suffering the pangs of hunger as, as were the followers and and there's um recorded in history that after that period the 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 conversion rate didn't slow down it actually increased mm-hmm. which is quite a, a phenomenal uh sign if if one was to look at it like that uh, another sign that uh, happened at the same time lot was this um shakul qamar which was referred to as the splitting of the moon maybe you can share with our listeners uh what actually happened and uh uh what the the sign refers to yes yeah, so the shakul qamar or the splitting of the moon is a significant event uh, because such events are not really recorded with such clarity in both the quran and the hadith literature um, and shakul qamar is a well known event it's a miracle uh, that the moon was split into two and people witnessed it uh, and the moon was split when the prophet pointed towards the moon so there's a 
it's it's a sign of his truthfulness. It was set up so the the whole thing has happened during, uh, it is said during the time of this boycott. Mm. So when you say that this is kind of the darkest and the bleakest point for the early Muslims, such a grand sign to sh- mm. to appear uh, is definitely to note that you know God wanted to show this sign, and as is the nature of such signs. It is to strengthen the resolve and the faith of the believers and the disbelievers or the opponents of the truth are likely to even increase in their disbelief and call it magic or, or, or a lie even. Now, the Quran has verses. There's a Surah Al-Kamar named after uh, this, uh, this verse. Uh, and Quran would have made this statement at that time that the revelation comes out that uh, the uh, the hour is nigh and the moon is split asunder. That's very clearly says that the moon is split asunder. How would those people who are the recipients of this message, apart from the Muslims, the non-Muslims of the Quraysh, receive this? Either they will say, no, that's a clear lie. Where is the moon? Was the moon ever split? We never saw that. But we don't really see much in the histories of people saying mm-hmm. that it never happened. Mm. Because there, there are eyewitnesses which point to, yes, it, we saw it clearly that the Prophet pointed to the moon. And Just to, sorry to interrupt you there. I mean, the, I think for me the interesting point is that a sign was asked yeah. from the Holy Prophet, you know, show us a sign of your, you know, truthfulness. Yes. And this was given as a sign to, to the Holy Prophet. Yeah. And, and, and as you said, you know, it happened um, at that precise time. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the Quraysh actually asked for a sign, mm-hmm. and as a result, the Prophet showed them the sign, and a group of them witnessed mm-hmm. this sign. Um, and uh, the sign was that the Prophet pointed the moon, and the part of them they split into two, and part of the moon was seen above the horizon, or part of the uh, 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 hill, and one uh, below it, meaning there was a clear separation of two parts of the moon. Uh, now, knowing that a moon physically being split into two and back. It seems physically impossible and one has to entertain certain other ideas on what could have really happened. But interestingly, there is at least one recorded similar event which was recorded in this country, in England, in 1178 by the monks in the um, Abbey of Canterbury uh, where they clearly witnessed... um, a lot of commotion on the moon, a dark cloud, and some fire even, apparently. And that, that event has been recorded, and the moon seemed to have split into two, according to that record. Mm. Uh, now, this could be a meteor shower. I mean, we can only guess what happened. One thing we know for sure, it did happen, and it's not the only event of, the, of this nature that had happened. We have at least one more record of it. Now the nature of such miracles can be debated on the on the on the reality behind it. For example, Moses, Prophet Moses, has shown miracles, and those miracles are well known in um, people who have read the Bible, turning the staff into a, a, a serpent, for example, or splitting the sea, for example. So these miracles have multiple explanations, but we know that these people existed and they had a mission and you know due to and despite all the opposition this survived and succeeded and prospered 
And these miracles may have had alternative explanations. But the splitting of the moon, I believe, has no other alternative explanation other than it happened. And, you know, that has two major interpretations. One is that uh, it succored the Muslims of that time to strengthen their resolve, but also it told the Quraysh and the Arab, the nation, that as the moon was their sign, I mean, the, 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 uh, the sign for the Arabs was the moon, that for their nation, its splitting was interpreted as a bad omen, and it probably put a lot of terror in their heart that uh, this sign or this omen is not good for, for them and the Arab nations as a whole. And Iqtar Abu you know, that the hour is nigh, mm-hmm. it's very clear that some interpretations or some commentators, especially non-Muslim commentators, said, well, Muhammad, peace be upon him, was saying that this is the end of the world, see the moon is split, uh, believe. But the the word used is our and or desire, which is interpreted in Arabic as a time of revolution as well. So we're talking about revolution and the Prophet being a revolutionary, mm-hmm. and that was a, a, a portent for the Quraysh and also a sign for the Muslims that the revolution was nigh. Thank you, Luth. Um, Azad Mirza Bashir Ahmed, in his uh, biography of the Holy Prophet, Khatam uh, Nabiin, Sir Khatam Nabiin, he writes about this particular miracle and, and uh, explains the um, event. Um, but he also says that actually there was another occurrence, and you, you've mentioned uh, an occurrence in the, in the United Kingdom witnessed by the monks. Let me just quote uh, from him. He goes, um, The powers of God are infinite, and human sights cannot comprehend even its simplest dimensions. Just recently, he writes, um, in 1928, an occurrence took place in South America, in the country of La Plata where a star was seen splitting into two pieces. The name of the star was the Nova Pictoris, and the largest observatory in southern uh, Africa, situated in Johannesburg, also confirms this occurrence. Uh, scientists assert the possibility that in the past, perhaps other heavenly bodies have also broken into two. So regardless of the nature of this miracle, I think the pertinent point that you've made there is that the Arabs asked for a sign. The sign was given. The Arabs didn't deny the sign. Um, oh, it didn't occur. They saw the sign. Yes, they may have come up with explanations for it. They may have said, oh, it's magic, it's hypnotism, whatever it is. But it, for them, it happened. Yeah. And if you if you recall from our previous discussion in the previous episode, um, the Quraysh of the time were no strangers to forging lies about the Prophet of Islam. At whatever opportunity they could, they'd, they'd try and... Um, they try and belittle him as a sorcerer. Um, they try and spe- spread false rumors about him. So they, they take any opportunity to um, undermine anything that he's claimed to be doing or anything about his character. But in, in this instance, they didn't do that. Uh, in fact, as you said at the start of this segment, um, they had challenged him for a sign. In, in the heights of their arrogance, they challenged him for a sign. And a sign was shown. 
Um, the other th aspect to uh, note about this point is, yes, you can speculate about what, what really happened and there's probably multiple explanations, but as Muslims it's important to note that nothing um, happened that contravened any law of nature. Um, but um, And that's, I think, of paramount importance. We may not have the explanation today, but something happened within the realms of our physical universe that um, could potentially happen again. Um, the the other aspect is that the nature of the his, his history of the Prophet of Islam, the nature of people recounting what he says and what he does, that's important here too. Let's remember that the Arabs of the time were very, um, uh, very uh, big on their oral history. They conveyed stories they uh, you know had wonderful memories and that's how much of the prophet of islam's life has come to us so uh, i think we need to take confidence in those measures um the culture of the day uh, that something did indeed happen the moon did appear to be split to those who were observing it and um it happened at a a time of great great challenge and great strife for for the muslims and one that gave them great confidence going forward mm -hmm. and one would um speculate that after seeing such a grand sign the persecution would cease or at least diminish mm -hmm. however the opposite happens the the adversities of the holy prophet uh, intensify um, the opposition increases yes indeed um, so after this period of time after um, these trials and this this sign um, unfortunately, the the level of hardship that the Holy Prophet began to experience became increasingly severe, and there were some instances which uh, which occurred to him, which are recorded, and I'll convey them to you here. Um, once the Prophet of Islam was walking on his way, and uh, and someone threw filth upon his head, and he returned home in this state, where one of his daughters quickly fetched some water to to help wash him and began to weep bitterly. Um, he, he calmed her and told her to not weep and uh, for God himself would protect him and, and these difficulties will pass. So a message of steadfastness for his, for his, for his family. And uh, another instance where he was, uh, uh, he was at prayer, uh, praying by himself in prostration. And uh, this was in the courtyard of the Kaaba and then a few of the leaders of the Quraysh were gathered as well. Um, and Abu Jehel, who we've mentioned before and will continue to mention um, for this period of the Holy Prophet's life, challenged his uh, some of his um, followers and said, "Someone, uh, if someone has the courage, throw the uterus of a camel upon Muhammad." And then one of his followers did did just that, slaughtered had a slaughtered. Well, he threw the uterus of a slaughtered camel, full of blood and filth, upon his back, and they all laughed at him. And um, it was, in fact, such a great burden that he was unable to get up by himself. So the news spread, and and once when Fatimatul Zahara learned of this, she came running and removed the burden from her father's shoulders. Um, it was only then that he was able to lift his head. These events are well recorded, you know, under the trials that early Muslims faced. But one thing that... Um, also is mentioned in history is that after one such event when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was persecuted and um, tortured in a, in a certain way, um, you know, I think it is the event that Safir is um, alluding to, the Prophet, peace be upon him, actually prayed against the perpetrators of that, uh, that act. 
and it is recorded that all those people who were involved were killed on the day of Badr, the first um, battle between the Muslims and the Meccans. Uh, so they, you know, they come up and came soon after this event, literally, I think, three years after that. Um, so yes, they, th these things, um, these persecutions are happening, but Muslims are also uh, now learning how to, you know, the, the ways of their faith, you know, how to pray, for example, and various injunctions about, you know, Islam are mm. being revealed. So it's not that, you know, they're suffering and that's the only it. The, the, the religion it itself is gradually being revealed via the Quran at the same time. Um, I think the first uh, prayers are being established around the same time and also um, certain um, other injunctions were revealed at the same around the same time. Yeah, we mentioned last time that the conversion of Hazrat uh, Umar and Hamza, may Allah be pleased with them, um, gave the the you know small Muslim community more courage, as it were. They had two stalwarts of the community of society at that time who were who were with them. So, as you mentioned, Luth, praying in public started. So they were no longer afraid to pray. And, and some of these instances where the early prophet goes to the Kaaba and actually prays in public, even though he's being persecuted uh, and attempts are, are being made to, to hum humiliate him. And it's interesting that, that you've mentioned that life, uh, the Islamic injunctions on how to live one's life on equity and justice and, um, and prayer and, and looking after you know, parents and, and well-being of orphans, all of these slowly um, being revealed over a period yeah. of, of, of these years. And the, the most important one, which, you know, again, is easily missed, is non-violence. Hmm. So there are Muslims who are you know, physically able to retaliate, like Omar and Ali and um, Hamza. You know, they are well-known warriors. People fear them for their... Uh, their the skill with the sword and uh, these uh, these Muslims were held back by what? by this belief that God is with them and violence is not the way so these three years in the under the boycott the boycott had been could have been could turned into a violent uprising mm. like these are you see you know anything anybody suppressed a civil war erupts you mm. know people start uh, doing mis mischiefs in the society to disrupt each other. But you can see that violence is only com coming from one direction only and Muslims are not resorting to any violence or, or even, you know, even verbal responses. Um, and, you know, the Prophet is teaching his uh, companions that if you are amongst a company where people are ridiculing you or me, uh, himself, or God, just pass by, don't stop or respond to them. Or if you're sitting with them and they start uh, mocking you or abusing your faith, just get up and go away. So in total contrast to what we see in uh, in Muslims, some of the Muslims these days, where you know, any mockery or any, um, uh, any propaganda against them turned into street riots and uh, burning of buildings and vehicles. Mm -hmm. So, and Montgomery Watt and other people like him have almost twisted this into a almost like an opportunistic kind of a tactic that when there were a few 
they kept quiet and when they were in strength they started waging wars. Yeah, I think yeah. we should uh, delve into that allegation yeah. a little more. Um, certainly we've come to the end of this particular uh, part of the show. Um, please do continue to join us after this short break where we will continue to discuss Muhammad, peace be upon him, the greatest revolutionary. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding, yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that, no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Welcome back to Around the Table, where we're discussing the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the greatest revolutionary. We were talking about the social boycott and the perse persecution, the death of his, uh, the Holy Prophet's wife Khadija and his uncle Abu Talib in the previous part. Um, let's move on now, Safir. And uh, so the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has lost his, his companion, his partner, um, Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her. Is there a gap there that that needs filling or what, what's the state of affairs at that time? Um, so the Holy Prophet of Islam has um, been recorded as saying that marriage is half of faith and that shows the, uh, st um, the standard at which this institution is held within the faith. Fundamentally, Islam is a social religion and, the, and it's broken down into little building blocks called families and at the heart of every family is a strong partnership between a man and a woman and this is um, as true today as it was in the days that the, the religion was being revealed to the early followers. And for the Prophet of Islam to be um, unmarried was not, um, was not in keeping with what he was requiring his followers to do. And he needed to set the example as well. So at this point, having lost his first, uh, his first wife, um, he remarried um, uh, to um, Hazrat Aisha and Hazrat Soda, one a young a young woman and another uh, a widow, um, and these were important marriages for the history of Islam, um, and an important milestone in the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. We should mention that Aisha was the daughter of his dear friend and companion uh, Abu Bakr. Yeah, so Abu Bakr would not have been called Abu Bakr then, right? Mm. Because He's called Abu Bakr. Bakr means Abu, meaning father of the virgin, in reference to Aisha, uh, may Allah be pleased with her, who uh, 
was uh, the only wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him, who was a virgin. Uh, and um, there's a lot of controversy around her age. And again, you know, opponents of Islam, and even, unfortunately, some Muslims also uh, believe that she was either six or nine when she was married. Uh, and there's extensive research on it nowadays, quite clearly proving that that was not the case. Although the norms of that time meant that she would have been quite young compared to how marriages uh, are done in this day and age. Even if you go 100, 200 years back, the ladies were getting married at around 15, 16 years of age, and that was probably most likely age of Aisha at the time of marriage. And there's plenty of evidence, and I don't think we need to delve too much into that. Uh, and the Prophet being the leader of a budding community had a responsibility not only towards the men, but also to the half of the other believers, the women. And, uh, you know, they, they, his wife would have been the ideal teacher for the women. Although the Prophet he himself, it is well preserved in history, instructed um, religion to women as well as we see in his life in Medina where women occupied you know the space in the mosque uh, for prayers and uh, the, the sermons and whenever he called people to the mosque women also came and um, there's a recent discovery of a collection of hadith by Dr. Hamidullah uh, who, who was a well-known scholar and uh, I think it's Sahifa Hammam bin Munabbe, uh, which clearly states that the Prophet used, whenever he had a revelation, he would recite the revelation to the men, and then he would go over to the women and recite the same revelation to the women separately. Uh, and that was his practice, meaning that he felt that there was equal uh, significance of this Quran that was being revealed to all mankind, men and women alike, and believing women got the same level of instruction. But his wife or wives would become a constant source of teaching through uh, the, his conduct, that because the, these, these ladies had insight into the Prophet's personal life, and a lot of the Hadith literature that we have now uh, has arrived to us through the chain of narrations uh, culminating at Aisha. Mm. Uh, meaning that Aisha reported on his personal life, how he used to, for example, what he used to eat, how he used to sleep, mm. how he used to bathe, for example. The intricate details of his life that Muslims even follow to date because they were narrated by his uh, wife Aisha, who was quite young, uh, and that, that meant that she lived a long life and was able to convey and teach many generations of Muslims after the demise of the Prophet. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come to talk about uh, as Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her in a bit more detail. But as you said, look, she became a great jurist of, of Islam uh, in the times of the, the caliphates. And, and people used to go to her for advice and for judgments um, because of her knowledge and experience and wisdom. Yeah, there, there were debates in front of her and she would um, uh, listen and give a verdict on, you know, who was right and who was not, religious debates on, on heavy, hefty topics. Uh, and her witness on so many things are important, like the, uh, the incidents of mirage or the heavenly journey, for example. Her insights into this, this event are very significant on how to interpret these things. And in terms of how what she understood was the role of women, and you can see it from her life, 
that when the time came when she had to make a call, although she then later admitted she was not right, she actually went out, led an army as well, but in the course that she thought was just at that time. So women, uh, their, their, their empowerment uh, is clearly visible, although you know we, we have to interpret history and we can't say that um, ultimately what Aisha, peace be upon him, did at that time was uh, the right thing, but her realizing that her going against uh, the, the rightful caliph at that time was a mistake, and that's also a well-recorded event in history. Mm-hmm. So as we said, life continues. Um, and one of the, the main uh, focal points of Mecca was the Hajj, the pilgrimage, where different peoples from around Arabia and further afield actually came uh, to perform their, their pilgrimage during the Hajj days. And this was a great opportunity for the Holy Prophet Muhammad and his companions to spread the message of Islam and the oneness of God to uh, all the people that came. Yes, and this, I think, is... Um, firstly, it, it, it goes to show that the message that the Prophet of Islam was uh, given was not just for the Quraysh of Makkah. This was a re- message that was designed to be more universal and far more wide-reaching. So the practice of the Holy Prophet of Islam to um, see these uh, gatherings of people, of Arabs and non-Arabs from uh, everywhere to um, as an opportunity to, to spread his message um, and uh, actually this was intensified during that period of, of the boycott when they were isolated and ostracized from the Meccan society the Holy Prophet of Islam used this as an opportunity to further engage those people that were traveling to Mecca not not just the Meccan um, uh, Arabs and that goes to show that actually, even though that was a very try- trying and difficult period of time, that the Prophet of Islam being a man dedicated to his mission, to his very course, or as an opportunity. So whilst it was difficult, it was challenging for him personally and his followers, there was an opportunity that came out of it. And perhaps this opportunity might not have been utilized had the boycott not happened. We can only speculate. Um, so various tribes would come and visit uh, Makkah, as we mentioned during the, the course of the p- pilgrimage, but the Quraysh of Makkah th- saw this as something of um, a threat to them. Not only was he at threat of converting people of their tribesmen of their city to his faith, he was actually now beginning to reach out to people who far and wide, and they they actually perceived this as quite a quite a significant threat because not only do they have to start worrying about what's happening in their own immediate society, actually this message which is beginning to take hold in their society is now being spread to, to peoples far and wide. So, um, But the, this was the Holy Prophet's mission and he was indeed committed to it. So he went to every camp he could. He presented them with the invitation of Islam um, and he continued to do that, um, including his famous journey to Daif. Mm. Just touching upon the, the, the Hajj, it's recorded by some... Uh, historians that during the the boycott period, the the Hajj period actually, the the Prophet and his companions were allowed to come to the Kaaba, and that's when uh, he obviously preached to the other tribes. Uh, this intensified when the boycott ended. Um, but did did these tribes uh, accept the message of Islam, or was there? Uh, reluctance and uh, rejection, outright rejection, to start with. So, as Safi was saying, it, it didn't. Apparently, it did not work. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there there were no immediate conversions, but there are other um, records which say that the, these efforts did have you know far-reaching consequences because a reputation mm-hmm. that you know this is a person and well we went to Hajj this year and this person mm-hmm. was claiming to be a prophet preaching a message, and that news reached far and wide. More importantly, to the town of Yathrib. Mm-hmm. where there was a significant presence of Jewish tribes uh, who were awaiting mm-hmm. a prophet, and it would have gone even further afield into Syria and um, other areas in the deep inside of Byzantine, where along the trade routes where um, the caravans would go back, because the Arabs were spread all the way from Yemen to um, you know the southern tip of uh, the Arabian Peninsula, and to the west was Palestine and, and modern-day Iraq. So these tribes would have now heard that something is happening in Mecca. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only did the Holy Prophet wait for the tribes to come to Mecca, he went and explored the towns and villages uh, adjoining uh, Mecca. And there's a famous narration of his journey to the town called Daif, which is about 40 miles to the southeast of Mecca. Um, Safid, do you want to share with our listeners what exactly happened during that journey? Because it is um, quite a, a, an emotional story as such. And then when the Holy Prophet um, recounts it in, later, in his later life, he, he actually refers to it as one of the lowest points in his life. Indeed, and so uh, so it's important to just f- to first consider the, s- the status of Daif. It was actually a very, um, it was a significant settlement or city or town, um, and it's that's t- attested to by one of the challenges of the Muckamans themselves, who said, um, why has who challenged um, on the revelation of the Quran, why has not this Quran been from God be sent to some great man of Mecca or Daif? And the implication is, great man. Is great men reside in places like Mecca and Adid Daif. So it was a significant settlement. It's, it was situated about 40 miles to the southeast of Mecca, and it was home to a tribe called the Banu Takif. And um, it was, in many respects, recognized as, as equal to Mecca. Influential and affluent people resided there. So, so the Holy Prophet of Islam, he took a journey there by himself uh, on, the, uh, on the authority of a number of um, narrations. When he arrived there, he remained there for 10 days. One after the other, he met with many leaders of the society, but exactly the same reaction was met to him as was met originally in Mecca. Um, and, it, you know, a reaction rejecting his message. Um, they, they all refused, and, and some of them even mocked the Holy Prophet of Islam. And he then approached the grand leader, a man called Abdul Yalil, and invited him to Islam. But he also refused and he also mocked him and said, if you are truthful, then I have not the strength to speak to you. And if you are a liar, then to speak to you is useless. Um, um, this leader was indeed concerned that some of the youth would be influenced by the Holy Prophet of Islam. So he told him to leave immediately, then stating that there was nobody here willing to listen to him. And he then um, set some of the uh, miscreants of the town to chase him out of the town, and they, as he as they did so, they bombarded him with rocks, and and he was injured during the course of this. He was wounded, and his entire body became drenched in blood. 
Um, they pursued him for about three miles outside of the city, outside of the town, cursed at him, throwing stones um, until he managed to find some refuge in an orchard um, uh, outside of the city. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, some narrations uh, narrate that he went there alone. There are other narrations stating that uh, he had a companion, his Zaid bin Haritha, uh, accompanied him there. So, w- w- nevertheless, it was him and, and one other uh, uh, at most. Um, but his conviction was was so strong that he went and stayed there for 10 days despite the harassment, despite the rejection uh, and the not only the verbal abuse, but the physical abuse that was, uh, you know, thrust upon him. I think that when we say that he went out exploring different towns, I think there's more to it. And there's, again, this literature pointing to that, that I think at the time of this boycott, or just after the Prophet, peace be upon him, started receiving certain signs that he will have to migrate. And he was shown places mm-hmm. which were greener than Mecca and had springs. And the closest to Mecca was the city of Taif. So in his mind, his interpretation at that time would have been that, let's explore and see whether that place that I've been shown in my visions or dreams is Taif. So he went there with great hopes, I imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, once, once a prophet is shown something, uh, you can see that he was now almost um, to at the verge of making the decision to leave his beloved Mecca, ac- according to the guidance that he was receiving. And he made uh, an interpretation of these dreams and started to go to to the first first uh, option that he, he had in mind. Uh, and one can imagine uh, that he went there thinking that God has promised him success in his Hijra or the or the migration and Taif could be the place, so and and going there and seeing the exact opposite now again that's a great test for mm-hmm. somebody who who thought that he was following God's will and uh, uh, having to run away from it with these um, uh, young boys chasing them and pelting them in stones and them drenched in blood from head to toe would have been. Uh, you know, a heart-wrenching sight to see at that time. Uh, and even at that time, you, you can see that when he was resting in this orchard, uh, somebody came and, and tried uh, f- provided them with food. And even to this person, he s- started preaching. preaching. Yeah. And that person was affected so much by that that they, uh, the, I think it was a slave of the owners of mm. that orchard. And the, the owners were... Uh, according to some reports, At, um, and Shaba, yeah. the sons of a famous Qureshi um, 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 chieftain, who later then were killed in the Battle of Badr. Uh, and they were surprised that their slave, who was just there to give them some water and food, uh, came back thinking he had seen the greatest person um, in his life. Uh, and here, there's another interesting one now. Uh, the, the, the reason why I think why people think that this was uh, trip to Taif was with the intent to leave Mecca because when the Prophet, peace be upon him, wanted to re-enter Mecca, he actually t- sought permission from the uh, tribal elders and he chose, and according to the custom, he could, he could choose any of the elders to give you protection. 
so he thought that you know the the elders would have thought that he has abandoned his city. Now we have we have the right to refuse him entry. Mm-hmm. So he asked Matam bin Adi to give him protection. Well, according to the you know God was his, his protector at all times, but he still followed the custom of the town and asked Matam bin Adi to be his guarantor. And Matam bin Adi is one of the more um, um, Considerate fellows, and he was actually at the forefront of ending the boycott as well. Um, but uh, he passed away soon after. Well, he gave him protection and brought him, the Prophet and Zaid bin Haris, back into the town under his protection uh, in front of everybody's eyes. And that custom basically said that anybody who has any issue with Muhammad, peace be upon him, entering the city has an issue with me. So that was a, a noble gesture. Uh, and uh, that again shows two uh, sides of things that you know Muslims, uh, when they go in any place, town, even if they stay, you know, uh, the, the, the people are against them or against their religion, they still should follow the law of that land. Mm-hmm. And the law of the land dictated that uh, permission be sought. He sought the permission. Mm-hmm. He was one of the um, sons of the leading families of Mecca. He could have thought, oh, I, I have an automatic right to be entering into my hometown, but he did not. And the second one is that even non-Muslims and sometimes opponents can show gestures of goodwill that are then appreciated. So uh, Hassan bin Sabit, one of the companions of the Prophet, actually praised Matam bin Adi in his poetry long after his death, although he was not a Muslim. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're, they're, these are events in history which we, we should make us reflect on the character not only of the Prophet, peace be upon him, but the people of that time that, you know, they were vile, when it came to the opposition of the truth. But at some level, some of them had some degree of uh, national um, uh, compassion that uh, they, they extended towards their fellow uh, Arabs or fellow Meccans, like Atba and Shaba did mm-hmm. in that orchard and Matamiladi did in Mecca. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, that leads to the further you know, migration and um, yeah. other events in the life of the Prophet. Thanks. I just want to return to the orchard um, at Taif because um, there's a narration, uh, a particularly famous narration, that the Holy Prophet uh, is sat there in the uh, underneath the uh, shadow of a tree, um, bleeding, as as you've said, Sophia, uh, almost from head to toe as it's, as is uh, narrated, and uh, the prayer is captured, and it's a really beautiful, heartfelt prayer, which I'd like to share with with uh, listeners, if I may. Uh, and the Holy Prophet prays, O oh my Lord, I complain to you of my helplessness and my inability and my helplessness before the people. O oh my God, you are the most merciful, for you are the guardian and protector of the feeble and helpless. You are my Lord. I seek refuge in the light of your countenance. It is you who dispels all darkness, and it is you who bestows the inheritance of favour in this world and in the next. And Sophie, I mean, that prayer kind of gives you an insight into the heart and mind of the Holy Prophet at that time. You know, as I said, later on, he goes to, to reflect on this and says that, it was a very lowly time. But even at that very lowly time, his immediate attention is towards God Almighty. He turns to God Almighty and says, I don't care what these people are doing to me, you know, they're persecuting me, as long as I have not 
um, you know, upset God Almighty. That was his that was his core prayer. That as long as God was satisfied with him, he wouldn't he doesn't mind being persecuted. I agree with all of that, and I think it goes beyond that as well. Um, if we can just reflect for a moment on the narrative that we've stepped through today, we've talked about the boycott, and then we've talked about the loss of his wife, the remarrying. Uh, we've talked about the intensification of the persecution, the humiliation that's visited upon him, now physically and in public. Um, and uh, then we've talked about his efforts to convey his message to a people in a, in a nearby significant town met with rejection. These are all... Uh, for me, the thing that strikes me is that this is a, a significant period of time now over three years that these where he's he's got a limited number of followers, very few of whom have any influence in society, no wealth, no certainly no army, and he's continuing on his mission. I think this just taking into account these years, this to me really puts at the forefront of the attributes any Muslim has to have is one of patience and forbearance, and he has been whether he likes to or not, been forced to demonstrate that. He's certainly got the strength of character to demonstrate that um, based on what we've seen. Now, in that prayer, it's very interesting because it is a prayer of someone who has been humbled. He is humbling himself before his his Lord. Um, if If you see the first few words of that prayer, I complain to you of my helplessness and inability and helplessness before the people. This is the words of a humble person. Um, this is someone. This is not the words of an arrogant, uh, a conqueror, anything else that you might wish to miscast the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, as this is a this is a man who, in all humility and knowing his his status um, in the universe, trying to f- complete his mission, but finding himself physically unable to without um, without the um, the grace of his uh, of his God. So I think that's a really profound and telling. A uh, few words uh, that summarises a very challenging period of time in the in the Prophet's life, and it's also a reminder to all Muslims that patience is very near the forefront of the attributes that we need to convey, and that is not an attribute that you most often see um, attributed to some Muslim behaviour in the world today. Nowadays, and people right. could, you know, because there's a lot of. You know, research nowadays where, you know, especially non-Muslim scholars start uh, casting doubts on the veracity of these events. Uh, and here uh, we need to, you know, keep in mind that the Hadith literature, which has been narrated, especially through the chain of Aisha, Razilanha, is very sound. And, uh, you know, uh, and it was the, the events of Taif come to us through her that the prophet once she asked the prophet what was the toughest time mm-hmm. in your life uh, because at by that time when she asked him i think he, there was a very particularly hard battle the Uhud, where he was injured almost killed in battle and a lot of companions were also hurt or, or uh, martyred but even to, to compared to that the prophet peace be upon him said life was the toughest time that he saw during his life um, and at that time also, again, there are, again, the Quran now bears witness to this, that a uh, convoy or, or a group of jinns uh, heard the Quran when he was reciting the Quran in the same orchard. And this is recorded in the Quran. Now, what is the nature of these jinns? I mean, for those who don't know, jinn are usually taken to be these mythical, fiery creatures that uh, dwell in another dimension. And you know, there are all sorts of... Um, uh, superstitions attached to that, and Arabs 
especially in their literature and their folklore, definitely had jinns as uh, mighty beings who were mischievous most of the time. And even to date, you know, we have stories of jinns, but these are not those jinns. The Quran mentions them uh, in a in a figurative way, and we don't know the true nature of that, whether they were people who were just passing by and they belonged to a different nation, because Taif is a, another trade route. It was a prosperous town. They may have stopped, uh, and we don't know the nature or the true nature of those people, where they came from. Uh, well, actually, there, there are theories that they came from the area of Nasiban, which is kind of way west outside of Arabia. And uh, it looks like these people or the, uh, these individuals heard the Quran and uh, they they were also followers of scripture, probably the Jewish scripture, and they uh, thought that it was very familiar or similar to what they know to be from God, and they took this back to their own people. So even if it wasn't a real, like a material uh, event, it could have been a, um, a vision that the Prophet saw, uh, or, a, or a, you know, a figurative way of telling the Prophet uh, that his message will go as far as those regions mm-hmm. where, which are being mentioned and people from other nations will come to hear of his message and accept him. Thank you. Look, sadly, we've come to the end of this episode, but it, the journey of life wouldn't be complete without mentioning um, the narration that... Uh, um, the Archangel Gabriel comes to to the Holy Prophet. So let me just quote this. The the Holy Prophet describes his detail to to Aisha uh, when when asked about the most difficult time, as Lutf alluded to earlier, and I quote, it says, During my return from this journey, the angel of the mountains came to me and said, God has sent me to you, that if you so command, I may bring the two mountains of this valley together upon these people and destroy them. But the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, Nay, nay, I trust that Allah the Exalted shall give birth to such people from among them who shall worship the one true God. And with that, let's uh, close this episode. We'll continue our journey. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as the greatest revolutionary. Join us next time as we continue the journey. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be with you.